0: There was one of our um, sales rep that, you know, this must have been maybe in 2014 or so. I remember we wanted to open some good stores in the New England area. And so we hired this guy and he used to be a professional runner, a uh, college runner. And all he did for the first uh, six weeks in his job was to go running with store owners and store managers. Did it work? And it worked. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we're talking 100 miles a week that this this guy uh, had to run. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, President of Nordstrom, and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, I'm super excited to share a special recording from this year's Footwear News Summit. At the conference, I had the opportunity to go on stage with three of our very best stylists to hear about how they've leveraged their freedom at Nordstrom to build incredible businesses for themselves.
2: Even though I work for Nordstrom, I am a business inside of Nordstrom, so my whole approach is focusing more so on the relationship building. I
3: was thinking about how do we reach more? and how do we get to have customers shop on their time and on their terms.
1: How much did you sell in 22? 2.7 million. Okay, that's pretty good. But before that, I want to introduce you to someone who's leading a company that's got to be one of the buzziest, most exciting, up-and-coming brands we carry, and that is On Running. So we have co-founder and chairperson for On Running, Casper Copetti. Jasper Copetti's story is particularly interesting because it's so authentically rooted in the entrepreneurial spirit. Innocently enough, he and co-founder Olivier Bernhard only started making shoes to fulfill their own personal running needs. When you combine this organic, humble approach to how they started the company with the fact that this company is based out of Switzerland, it makes it an even more interesting story. They had no idea that it would evolve into the global phenomenon that it is today. But what they did know was that if they could only get runners to try on their shoes, the business would take care of itself. And it did. Professional runners wearing on-running shoes began speaking out about the incredible benefits they felt, including examples of runners with previous injuries getting back up to speed faster than ever before. And despite On's amazing growth and success, money has never been what drives them. Casper talks about running as an incredibly emotional experience with each different environment inspiring a new type of product. That's what makes this brand so unique, and that's why we're talking with him today. So let's get into it. All right. So this morning, we've got Casper Copetti, who is one of the founders of On Running. And if you've been paying any attention to what's going on in the athletic shoe industry, and you could start just like being in an airport and looking at the shoes people wear. Once you know what On Running shoes are, you start seeing them everywhere. And it's a brand that I don't know, we've carried here. For four years, and it's been like a rocket ship. It's really taken off, and you're competing in such a difficult space in the athletic industry. So anyway, Casper, you know you're you're great to join us. You're calling, we're talking to each other. You're in London. I'm here in Seattle. Your company's based in Switzerland. So thank you for making yourself available to be on the Nordy Pod.
0: <laughs> Thanks for having me, Pete. Hey, and we, uh, um, you know, we obviously didn't uh, start the brand uh, for airports. Uh, and that's more kind of like an application of the of the extraordinary comfort that, that our cushioning provides. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, we're, we're we're building equipment for runners, and especially in the early years, it bothered the heck out of us if st- people wore them for things other than running. You know, it took us a little while. This is like you, you know, you design the fastest race car, and people drive it into the mall to go shopping, you know, that, that, you know, for an engineer, that's uh, like, a, that's a worst nightmare, but we've gotten used to it and we take it as a compliment that some of the tech features that make the shoes performant for
1: athletes, just make them comfortable for everyday use. Yeah. So go back to the origins of how you got started making a, a shoe company. Cause again, I, I can think a few things in the world that I'm familiar with that is more challenging and competitive than getting into the athletic footwear industry, which is largely dominated by the giant Nike and Adidas, for example. I mean, I don't know what the market share is between those two guys, but it's got to be huge.
0: Luckily, we were very naive. I (laughs) mean, we hadn't been in the industry before. Literally, how this started was that my co-founder, Olivia, he was a professional triathlete. He was actually on the Nike team at the time. And he got injured. He went from being the best runner in the sport of triathlon to not being able to run at all. So, and and Nike didn't have at the time a product that helped him overcome his his pain issues. So he started working with a Swiss engineer, and what they came up with was a um, revolutionary way of doing cushioning or absorbing impact. You know, imagine these these round rings. In the beginning, they were actually made from garden hoses. The original prototypes. Um, that allowed you to absorb uh, impact in a different way. They patented it. And so we were blessed with this invention that we used for ourselves. And that helped Olivier overcome his injuries. I came from snowboarding. I was more of the extreme sports type. And running for me was a chore. I had to do it for training, but I didn't enjoy it. And all of a sudden with this um, you know, early prototypes, running started to be fun.
1: So you guys were essentially, you didn't enter into it With the grand business scheme, it was more like you were solving your own problem. You were just trying to take care of an issue about yourselves.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that it's still still the same motivation today. I mean, you'd laugh if I showed you the first business plan that we had on. We thought that maybe if we were super successful, we could build a company that would do maybe 20, 30 million in revenue. And uh, last year, we did something like 1.3 or 4 billion US dollars. But, you know, all these numbers, they don't really mean that much to us because in the end, we're still our own customers. You know, we 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 still get together in the lab and we're like, hey, I would really love to have a product that does X, Y, Z. You know, both my co-founder, Olivia and myself, we're very emotional uh, people in terms of that. Uh, we, we try to stay positive and it's all about managing energy and, and exercise, uh, running movement in general are... Great tools to do that and and so you know, a lot of our motivation comes from how can we capture these emotions that we have when doing sports and turning them into products and there there are many different you know ways of of running and exercising and sometimes I just need to clear my my mind. You know, I'm, I have a pretty high paced life. I have two small children. I'm the chairman of a you know multinational stock list company. When I'm in the office, I have literally hundreds of people that wanna wanna speak to me and get my my input. So sometimes my my run during lunch is just to get away from it all. And it's not about you know I don't I don't wear a watch. I don't you know record my my times on Strava on those runs. It's all about just decompressing and opening up the mind. At other times I'm feeling like, uh, you know, I want to break records and this might be a crisp morning in California and I'm running on the boardwalk and, or central park has that effect where like every casual run turns into a race because everybody's so competitive or it could be a run that you could probably relate to being from Seattle when it rains at night, where it's all about basically you're breathing and, you know, you lose, you know, every sense of, of time and space as you run and how do you capture all these emotions and turn them into, into products and, and make, make things out of them that others can relate to. That's really where, where the inspiration comes from.
1: So did people think about it in early days, because you have a unique design of the soul and everything that it was gimmicky in some way, or did you have to convince people that it's practical?
0: Runners immediately felt the difference. Yeah, so we worked with uh, mostly injured athletes, injured professional athletes. And, and for them, it made a big difference whether they were coming back from a knee injury or shin splints or back pain. And they started winning races in our product pretty quickly. Like one case that I would love to mention is Frederick van Leerde. He was a professional triathlete. He had shin splints. And his agent kept calling all the time. Hey, can you know? Can you sponsor my guy? And we're like, no. We you know we're a running brand. We're not so interested in triathletes. And 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 finally, I asked, you know, Olivier, what do you think? And he's like, well, he could probably, you know, take top three in the worlds. And I was like, well, then let's give him give them give him some free shoes. And he took them, and he ended up winning the race. And you know, and that was one of the the moments where other athletes saw that with this product, you can actually run better and 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 potentially also
1: faster so was that literally your marketing plan how many shoes can we afford to give to whomever so that we get some visibility here that was the plan but the plan didn't
0: work out and i'll tell you why this industry there are so many free samples going around that literally like we would send the free shoes to you know running store owners in the u.s and i'd be all excited calling them a week later i'm like hey how did you like them? And they were like, "Oh, I haven't even, you know, unpacked them. You know, I just put them in the box with all the others." And so we we changed the strategy. And what we did is, and you'll laugh, is we actually went running with almost everybody personally.
4: So
1: you mean, for like a your while, potential customers and stuff. You went running with I, them, literally. I
0: mean, between Olivia and I, in the first three years, we probably ran with six, seven hundred retailers.
1: Wow! <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it just shows that. In the beginning, and this now, you know, with, with all the recent success that, we, that we've had, especially in, in North America, it, it feels so absurd, you know, that that we had to go through all these shenanigans, uh, chen- whatever the word is, um, the, all these, shenanigans. these chores. Yeah, <laughs> shenanigans,
1: exactly. So when exactly did you first have shoes that were out in the market? What year? We um, sold the first pair late June 2010. And was that pair sold directly like a D2C situation or was that something you sold to a retailer who then sold it to a customer?
0: Well, I was actually at the running store trying to win that running store over when a customer asked whether he could try them. And we sold them right there on the spot. So it's kind of a combination of wholesale wow. and D2C. So you got
1: to sell the first pair of shoes? Absolutely, yeah. Wow, that's pretty good. <laughs> so when did you know that this was something... That was gonna grow and scale. Was there a defining moment where you felt like this thing is real and we've got a great opportunity here? I'm not sure
0: whether there was the one moment, but there were several moments that were super encouraging. Now looking back, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, as a startup, you know, there's just this, this truism like you fake it till you make it. So you 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 pretty much you, you have to be your biggest cheerleader. You know, so you cling on to these moments of success. Um, I remember probably 2013 being our toughest year. There was one moment where I was actually, I was about to fly to the US to see retailers and it came down to the wire. Can we make payroll that month? And we actually had, um, you know, in, when you do a capital round it's Switzerland, you go to the public notary. We had a meeting scheduled at eight o'clock and my flight was leaving at 12. And I knew if I was, if I made that flight that we had successfully closed around. And we did, we literally scrambled everybody, and all of us, like we had to pitch in and like we had to forfeit some of our, our salaries. But I remember we closed around, I rushed to the airport and they upgraded me into first class by ah. coincidence. And this was one of my happiest moments as an entrepreneur. <laughs> and ever since, I would say definitely it's like the last seven, eight years, it's been much smoother sailing. It's no longer these high pressure moments. Except for maybe that, you know, the time I came to see you in, in Seattle and I wanted to open Nordstrom's. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the toughest thing you probably ever had to do. We, we were a captive audience for sure. So I, I, I want to make sure we kind of put this in context. So you're talking about 10 years ago, your company's doing 8 million Swiss francs a year in business. And you're doing, a what are you doing, a billion what now?
0: We did 1.22 billion Swiss francs, so about 1.4 billion U.S. dollars last year.
1: I mean, you know, that's amazing. I mean, you guys deserve a, a ton of credit for that. I, I was wondering if any point along the way was the momentum that you have almost like its own fuel. You know what I mean? It's like there is momentum, there's traction, and I don't know if we can actually fulfill the demand out there.
0: Yeah, well- it's a good question. So every market has a tipping point. It feels, and we have this formula within on that that we've derived over the years, and it has to do with density. So you need a certain amount of people wearing on products that it it it, it almost becomes contagious, and it's it's exponential. And I would say in the US, that phase has happened literally during the pandemic. I remember. In 2019, I could walk through New York and maybe see five pairs of ons. When we came back after the pandemic, we would see fifty, sixty pairs. Wow! <laughs> yeah, it was like, wow, we're in New York. There's ons everywhere. Like literally, you walk by an Orange Theory Fitness, and you have the girl in the in the Lululemon tights with the Cloud Swift, and then you go to Chicago and you see that person wearing that. You know, literally, like. At first, I thought somebody had hired actors to just walk around us. It was literally so striking.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I've noticed the same thing because, you know, it's something we carry and I'm just paying attention. That's kind of my point about airports. You you start looking around what people are wearing and that's when you can see a bunch of people at once. And it is remarkable. I another example of that I was, I, I traveled to Hawaii for a friend's birthday party and he had a bunch of friends there that I, I didn't know. They were from Los Angeles. And I swear to God, they were all wearing on running shoes, you know, they were going to play in tennis or they're playing pickleball or they're going running or they're just walking around and every one of them. And I asked like, how did you know about on where'd you, cause you know, we built up this big business and, and I can't really remember what their answer was, but there's been this tipping point where it's, it's this thing, you know? And I mean, here we sit and we can't catch lead really the man you guys have been great partners and, you know, in Phoenix, all the product you can, but they're, it's impossible in this moment to f- to feed all the demand but maybe that's okay cuz you know us being in the designer business that's the whole formula scarcity is part of it. they're not going to be ubiquitously distributed they're not going to be everywhere it's going to be kind of hard to get so do you guys think about that a little bit in terms of your distribution strategy for example in the united states absolutely
0: you know that comes back to where are our roots and our roots are in performance and our roots are in switzerland and so the you know, when we started this, we looked at other brands and we saw that the market leaders, they all made a you know product at $180, but they also made a $60 product. And it was almost like they're they were diluting their own brand through their own products. Right. And we said, well, can we be the the brand that only makes the best possible product? Which also means that, you know, by using better materials, um, you know, making lighter shoes, making faster products, we also need to push the price points. And, and we're working on products and, and, you know, there's, there's been this big surge where new materials actually have helped runners go fast. So that's why you see all these world records tumble. And we're now working on product where we're bringing these materials that are engineered for pro athletes, bring that to your four and a half hour marathon and, and helping them feel lighter, feel fresher, achieving their goals. Um, but that probably might cost on three hundred
1: dollars. Yeah, you mentioned that that tiered pricing strategy because you think about you know Nike or Adidas for example, and they have a, a, a tiered strategy. They have kind of what they've called the family footwear market, and then they've got kind of that mid tier market, and then they have what they would call tier zero shoes that they make very few of and are available in hardly any place. And you know our thing with them was always talking about. We want to bring to customers the best the world has to offer. And so how do we get access to that tier zero product? And, you know, I'm curious how you think about that, too, because, you know, we've got this big business together. But I can only imagine, you know, you're you're from Switzerland, you're probably going, what the heck is Nordstrom? Well, it's a department store that doesn't fit our thing. And we want to sell running stores. So how did it happen that you decided to open the aperture of where you were going to distribute this product to include someone like Nordstrom? At at the core,
0: we're a performance and innovation company. So in a, in on's retail partnerships, we're looking for competence, and Nordstrom's you know that became very very clear you know once we started to operate in in North America that that you have a tremendous history, amazing service, a lot of experience in this space, and and so it was a natural fit for us. And you also. Have a, a an active consumer that that comes from a you know maybe a premium or aspirational background and that's that's pretty much where you know when when you look at on's dna of of performance and premium that's where it
1: intersects so I'm curious for you guys you know like what's next i mean you, you've grown this big business, it's legitimate, it's got all this stuff going for you, got a lot of momentum. Do you think about planning this thing out with some view of what the next 10 years will look like and what your goals are?
0: Yeah, look, <laughs> we got asked that question a bunch. And my standard answer was, well, we're, we're rarely three years old. How should we you know, know what we're going to be in 10 years? But I would <laughs> right. say with 13 years under the belt, we can probably afford to look out three to five years. And really, you know, we don't feel that ON has to change the formula. You know, we're not going to do anything radically different. We're going to keep innovating and and we always find new ways of innovating. And, you know, I said that until very recently, we were basically our own inspiration, our own customers. We designed for us. As we're getting older, we also recognize that we're maybe not on top of every athletic trend or like fashion trend. So we've handed uh, quite a lot of um, decision-making power to the next generation of designers and engineers. And one, one particular thing that I would love to pay, point out is a sad truth about the running industry is that all products are developed by male in male sizes and then scaled down to women, right. even though more than half of our customers are female. So we have started, um, and we're now in the, you know, the second season where we do this, that every, every other model is designed on a women's last in women's sizes. That's
1: smart. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, you think about the whole athletic industry, what they used to call pink it and shrink it, right? They would like, let's make a, a woman's version of this thing. And that's been a big unlock for us when we interact with different athletic brands because it is so male dominated and we have so many female customers and they're looking for that opportunity. So like at Nordstrom, for example, what is the ratio of men's to women's product that you're selling?
0: I just know across the US, it's probably like almost 60 women's, uh, 40 men. Is that right? Yeah. So it's predominantly women and, you know, it just opens up new avenues. Like, you know, all of our, all you know, the three founders were size US 10. So all our samples we're always uh, size 10 and Last week, I was at a line review where we were looked at the spring twenty five product and half the shoes I couldn't try. <laughs> but then I made me think, well, you know all the women in the room, and you know half of our designers and engineers are female, they had that feeling for the past ten years right and and so you know it's very refreshing, and I'm very curious I'm pretty sure that by not you know pinking and shrinking it, we might create a new running sensation, right.
1: Hey, I was thinking, you know, someone made a comment on your team, if you're willing to comment on this. They were talking about the Nordstrom business and how it's going well. And, you know, one of the things I always say to brands is we want to be more important to you guys. And I, we were talking about this. And they said, well, you're already really important to us. And they said, let me put it to you this way. we We talk about our business at ON around the different countries. And if Nordstrom were a country, we'd be talking about the U.S., Germany and then Nordstrom. So we'd be the number three country. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Nordstrom's, uh, you know, if I remember the data the, the, the correctly, is bigger than Switzerland.
1: All right. Well, that's good. Yeah. We, <laughs> we want to be important to you guys. It's, 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 and really we, have, a great
0: we have roughly 40% market share in Switzerland, just to, to put things into <laughs> really? perspective. Oh my yeah. God. That's amazing. It's almost like you have to sign a wafer if you want to buy another brand,
1: you know? <laughs> yeah. Hey, so Casper, I'm wondering from your point of view, Again, we've got this partnership. We're super grateful to be important to On. It's, you know, customers love it. It's, you know, you don't go walking down the mall and see these shoes for sale everywhere, but you can buy them at Nordstrom, and we're, we're really proud of that. But what advice do you have for me, for Nordstrom? As, as you know, you work with all kinds of different retailers, and you, you have a more international perspective. What advice do you have for us so that we can, you know, continue to be relevant and inspirational to customers?
0: Wow. Well, I feel that we're standing on the shoulder of giants when we work with you. Um, so I'm not sure whether I'm in a position to give you advice, but definitely consumer behavior is changing quite rapidly. Um, and the one thing unifying trend that drives everything is comfort and convenience. So how does that translate into fashion and especially in the footwear industry? Where you know hardly anybody wears uh, leather soled shoes anymore. I was speaking to the CEO of Balì, well, it's now about two years ago, and literally like seventy percent of their shoes and they're the original leather shoe, right? Uh, globally, seventy percent right. of their shoes are now sneakers. And so, how do you stay on 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 top of these trends? But then, how do you bring your lens to those trends? Because you're consumers, and that's why we love working with with Nordstroms is you know your consumer extremely well, and they trust you to pick and choose the right assortment for them. For them, Nordstrom's is the brand. It's not on, it's not Nike, but they come to you because you curate for them. And so how do you always stay at the forefront of that change and what kind of culture do you need in your team to be able to do that?
1: Right. Yeah, you definitely have identified the challenge. That's that's for sure. I mean, when you're doing business with all these different people around the world, um, do any retailers really stand out to you as being particularly good at that? Well,
0: retailers are at risk of, of, of seeing the future through the rear mirror because right. it's always about, you know, annualizing, um, you know, a certain sale number. And so what has worked well in the past, how do you roll that forward? And that's why what you, what you said earlier, I mean, just the the speed of the, of the scale up of what we've done together and being able to say yes to new kid c- categories that we've introduced, to maybe things that seemed risky. That's, I think, what what makes a, a good retailer, uh, a great retailer. And then, you know, with all the buying and the lead time and the budget allocation, how can you try things? And as soon as something gets traction, get behind it. I think right. that's 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 the, the the magic formula. And very few retailers, unfortunately, are able to to pull this off. And Especially in you know, in our homelands in Europe, there's a lot of of retailers that are very reluctant to change. So we always have to use the Nordstroms and you know the 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 fleet feeds as case examples of look what look at what they've done and you know this trend will hit Germany in, in the next twelve to twenty four months. Why don't you guys get ahead of it?
1: Yeah. That's great. Look at Casper. You're you're so nice to join me today. I mean, I'm I'm grateful for your time and telling us the story of on running. It's it's fantastic. But you know, like I said too, I'm also super grateful that you've been such great business partners for Nordstrom. And as much as been as accomplished here together, there's there's more to do. And uh, again, anyway, we just we really appreciate you guys. And I just want to congratulate you on all your success. Thank you so much, Pete. And nothing beats a good conversation. Now we're going to switch gears and we're going to go to the Footwear News Summit, which I was recently a guest speaker at. It was fun for me to be invited, I appreciated it. And our idea was rather than just talk about more platitudes that happen in the footwear industry, what if we actually shined a light on what it takes to be a successful salesperson today? This is really the magic of what creates exceptional retailing. So we got three of our very best stylists Jesse James Barnhold, Gregory Clark, and Jeffrey Ola to come essentially be my guests and so we could interview them. It was super enlightening and I think fascinating for the group of footwear industry professionals there to hear about how it all comes to life on the fitting stool with really engaged and super credible salespeople. Oh, that's pretty cool. Uh. All right, here we are. Hi everybody first thing I want to say is one thing that's been great about doing this podcast i been doing it for about a year is I get a chance to talk to all these different people in the industry people I know from our business but perhaps the most gratifying thing and and even the most informative even while it's the thing that I'm closest to is listening to our people and kind of hearing about how they do what they do these three of our absolute best shoe sellers in our company and what I want to do is introduce these guys and tell you about what successful shoe selling looks like in the modern era. And I think you'll be super impressed, and it's very inspiring. So we've got Jeffrey Ola here, and Jeffrey is a salesperson for us at Tyson's Corner. And we got Gregory Clark, who's a salesperson for us in New York in our men's store there. And we have Jesse James, who's a salesperson for us. I shouldn't say they're stylists. I should give you a more elevated title than that, but they're, they're all essentially selling shoes and have elevated what they do to more of a stylist game. And he's with us at Pittsburgh at our Ross Park store. And what they all have in common is they've got a very entrepreneurial take on make customers feel good and look their best, and let's sell a lot of shoes. Don't forget to sell shoes. Uh, I'll start with Jesse James here, and the distinction he has is he's the number one shoe salesperson at Nordstrom. So Jesse, tell us a little about yourself and what that actually means. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. Um, to be number one in order what that all entails. So yeah. go for it.
4: Um, been with the company about 17 years. And what's really transformed my ability to sell has been digitally. With social media, mostly through Instagram. My Instagram is designer.mens if you all want to follow. You should follow them, designer.mens. It's really good. And <laughs> it's, I want to be the first thing someone sees in the morning, and I want to tuck them in at night. I want them to, when they wake up in the morning, they turn their, you know, alarm off on their phone, they start scrolling, they see me first thing in the morning. And when they're going to bed and they're setting their alarm and they're scrolling, they see me at night.
1: So what percentage of your sales is done kind of remotely from people that you don't necessarily know? And what percentage of it is done from people you're interacting with? Probably
4: them 70% of my business is now digital. And most of those customers I haven't met. So I am... A website with a fantastic personality,
1: basically. So, um, so let's quantify for that. So how much did you sell in 22? 2.7 million. Yeah, okay, that's pretty good. Oh, yeah. so, so how's that change? I mean, you started selling shoes a long time ago. You're a guy on the floor, slugging it out. Right, wait for, for customers to come price. in. Yeah. So how did it evolve for you? I mean, you talk about leveraging digital how did you think about it more broadly than waiting for customers to come in
4: originally i was just trying to take pictures of all the new stuff that we had in and i wanted to let people know what we had in because not everyone comes in every day but everyone's checking everyone i kept on seeing everyone on their phone nonstop we are always on our phones so if i could create something to where someone can just scroll through and say oh my god they have a new shoe in store i need to come see it that's what i was trying to do and then i started getting messages from my first customer I helped lived in Alabama. And I'm like, oh my gosh, wait, this is great. And then the next day I sold a, a boot. I'm like, oh, this is, and I don't know who these people are and they're not in Pittsburgh. This is great. And now it's, I'll wake up to 20, 30 messages a day. Hey,
1: can I get this? Can you send me this? And that's where it's evolved too. Yeah. It's really impressive. So Clark, tell us a little about your journey, you know, your orientation to selling shoes and how you ended up at Nordstrom. I came to New York from Baltimore about 11 years ago to study
2: fashion, and I got recruited by Kohan to work at Kohan. I ended up being the number one salesperson there, and then they sold the company, so I was transitioning to Nordstrom, and I I had the honor of opening the Nordstrom Men's Store in New York, so I've been there for about five years. I was hired to work in shoes and later got promoted to be the stylist. Uh, My approach is... I look at the business as even though I work for Nordstrom, I am a business inside of Nordstrom. So my whole approach is focusing more so on the relationship building. So I do a lot of one-on-one going to people's houses, doing their closets over. and But start the relationship inside of the store and just expanding the business uh, even when you're not inside of the
1: building. That's great. All right, Jeffrey, tell us a little about your story.
3: So um, I'm a people person. I enjoy offering service and making people feel good. So my uncle said, hey, why don't you come and join me over here at Nordstrom and try it out, let's see. Um, in six months, I was able to um, gain promotion as an assistant manager for our shoe department. And then, late back in 2018, I started off my Instagram business page, which was to then connect customers to sales associates, because what will happen is everyone is waiting for people to come up the escalator and get service, but how about, I was thinking about how do we reach more customers? And how do we get to have customers shop on their time and on their terms? So I started out the Instagram business page and I've been able to grow that business. Um, My first year selling fully on the floor, I did a little over 700. And two years later, did a, over um, a little over two million Woo! selling shoes.
1: Yeah, you guys are pretty good. I tell you, <laughs> that's those are amazing numbers. Like, what was the tipping point for you as a salesperson who said, wait, I can do way more than just being defined by this carpet pad in a store"?
4: When I started in La Jolla, I was trained by probably some of the best in the company. I just I mean sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. I was just lucky to have those people around me. And it's it's great to be entrepreneurial because it's basically you're you are your own business. And it just work hard and you figure out what works and you just keep on doing it until you get your own sense of being and how you want to present your service.
1: So Clark, how about you talk a little bit about how going through the pandemic kind of just flipped everything on its ear and, and forced you to look, you know, probably more critically about how you do this job so that you continue to do well under you know, adverse circumstances. So uh, with the pandemic uh, in New York, I thought it
2: was just a tough time for me to try to still sell to customers during this time. I wanted them to go through what they were going through because it was so much uncertainty. So instead of reaching out to the customers about buying things, I just reached out to check on their mental health and different things of that sort. So and you weren't trying to sell them, you just checking and say how you're doing? Not at all, not at all. So when we got out, when we kind of transitioned out of COVID, all of those people that I checked on and I reached out to, I had a major increase
1: in my business. That's amazing. Uh, That's playing the long game right there. That's smart. (laughs) Okay, I want to know from you guys, because how our service culture has evolved and developed is largely based on actual things that have happened and stories, and we amplify those to help illustrate what good looks like. So can each of you guys share, like, your favorite story with us, your Nordstrom story? We'll start with you, Jeffrey.
3: I met a customer who I've been working with for the last um, five years, and Just last year, she bought a home, and she came over to tell me about the new beautiful home that she built, and she immediately started crying, and I was like, oh, this got very (laughs) awkward. So I'm like, what's going on? She then decided to pour her heart out and tell me about her recent divorce and everything that was happening, and how she used my Instagram page as an escape from reality. And then it all kind of started making sense because she would come in for an appointment and will stay an hour, two hours after the appointment, just sitting around, enjoying company, talking, watching me taking care of other customers. It gave me a different perspective on why I do what I do. And she said, thank you so much for staying consistent with it because every day me going onto your page, was to take me away from all of that stuff. So that really meant a lot to me. That's great.
1: Hey Clark, how about you? What's your
2: favorite story? Uh, One of my favorite stories is I had a a customer come in and give me a a major issue that her and her husband were experiencing where he was a very difficult fit. um, So they always had problems finding the correct shoe for him. and, And most times they would go places and they just wouldn't be successful. So I measured uh, his foot and noticed that he had been wearing a 13. and He should have been wearing a 14. So I brought out a few shoes. Uh, one of them was actually a 13, but it ran a little large, and that was the one that he wanted to go with. But I was insistent to tell him and his wife, like, it, it'll be comfortable now, but later on, once you've been in it all day, it just won't work. I'll do my best to try to find it. And as I went through uh, people in our company to try to help me get the size, they were just saying that unfortunately at this time, we didn't buy that size. Uh, So I went to the brand that actually carried it. I purchased the shoe myself and then I sent it to the customer's home. Uh, As a thank you, she referred one of her friends to me in January, early of the start this year. Uh, this customer wanted to do a whole wardrobing over it and has become the number one customer for New York off of a problem I solved with her friend.
1: Yeah, is, is this the... Is this, <laughs> I think I know the story. Is this when I got sent that picture of a receipt that was about that long? It was a little longer, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get this receipt. Like, what is that? Tell us people what, what that sale added up to. Uh, a little over 90000 <laughs> That's a good day right there. Okay. It's a good month. <laughs> so it's Jesse, of- how about you? What's your
4: favorite story? Mine actually hits home because about two months ago uh, at school, I have five-year-old twins. They asked uh, you know, my kids what you want to be when you grow up. And my daughter said a ballerina, which totally fine. She wants to be a ballerina. That's awesome. And my son said a shoe seller. And that just means that I love my job so much that I'm bringing it home that he sees it in such a positive light that he wants to be like dad. And that just makes me happy. You got to post that picture on your page. Have you done that yet? You've I've not, done it in my stories. Never actually did a physical photo. You should do post, that but. picture
1: of his son on his class project. I mean, what I want to be. And he's kneeling there. It's a shoe seller. Like <laughs> that is pretty awesome. Hey, look, it, um, I just want to tell all of you how much I appreciate what you do and how you've taken this the art of selling and elevated to something that you know i don't think you could teach people and you've helped create a standard and a level of possibility for people coming in like how much money can i earn how can i make this my own business and it's super valuable and then the last thing is just what you've been able to do to help perpetuate and grow a culture of service in terms of how customers use so You guys do a lot to make our customers happy, and I just want to tell you, we're super proud of you guys. We hold you up as an excellent example, and just thank you for being here today and sharing your stories. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to Nordstrom.com slash podcast where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom, so if you have a story about how you receive great service or even bad service, send us an email to NordyPodcast at nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you just might hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy. Drop us a line and be part of the NordyPod. Also, be sure to follow us on our newly added Instagram page at the NordyPod to stay up to date on new episodes, announcements, and more. And make sure to tune in next time when I sit down with two incredible voices in the fashion industry global editorial director for GQ, Will Welch, and editor in chief of Vogue, Anna Wintour. I do think it would be boring if we had all creative directors leading the fashion houses, or if we had all designers who like went to fashion school and really understand the mm-hmm. discipline. This mix is right for our I'm, time.
0: Will is right. The most important thing is that that person, whether they went to fashion school or they came from a different path, is they have to be very open to the world around you. You have to walk in the street. You have to go to museums you have to watch movies you have to just breathe in the culture you can't create fashion through an ivory tower or being surrounded by people that say yes to everything that you're trying to do you, you need people who contradict you and question you and that is what we need more of in fashion
1: this is a really great conversation covering the amazing careers of these two individuals who are frankly unbelievably impactful in our industry I think you'll find this a super fascinating conversation, and I'm really excited to share this episode with you. So, join us next time on the Nordy Pod.